Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Welcome to the Human Odyssey. I'm your host, Cynthia Rando, CEO of Sofix Synergistics, a Houston-based human-centered design consulting firm. Uh, Throughout this series, you're going to hear episodes that focus on a variety of topics, including current events, new technology developments, and current trends in areas of interest in human-centered design and user experience. And today is no exception. This is our second episode focused on survival of the adaptive with our guest, Jeff Grayley. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, Jeff, you and I go go pretty far back, farther than I'm, I'm ready to admit anymore <laughs> in terms of age and lifespan on this earth. But, um, you know, we've, we've had an interesting past. And as I was preparing for today's episode and reading over your bio, you know, we, we have such a complementary path in life in terms of having worked within the government space specific to open innovation, as well as human-centered design. It's like two unicorns and two different forces, like completely unheard of. Um, but you, you have a fascinating path uh, working at the Air Force Research Lab. Um, you know, we, we got to know each other back in the open innovation, open.gov early days when the government was truly ahead of the curve for once in looking at innovative methodologies for how to conduct government business, um, you know, taking advantage of global expertise, you know, with, with, with small um, resources, if, if that makes sense, without having to hire and own them in-house. And, you know, NASA was looking at this for different reasons than the Air Force, but specifically we were saying goodbye to the shuttle program and really faced with a daunting ca- task of still trying to prepare for our Mars mission, but with a reduction in force going on because we were losing the shuttle folks. And so open innovation initiatives, like the the methodology, the strategy, as well as the tools were very attractive to NASA in terms of trying to um, augment internal resources that we didn't have with external expertise. And and that's sort of where we dovetailed with the Air Force because you guys were actually using it first. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think over time, collectively, we were able to collaborate and be um, great, um, if I will, you know, a little leniency here, government consultants for the, for the rest of the world. Um, but you guys took a really different track with the Air Force and the DOD, you know, based off your, your background, which was more um, testbed analytics, um, a lot of um, experience in the ISR programs. And so I don't know if you'd like to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the common threads between us is I don't I don't think either of us has much stomach for the status quo. Uh, doing the same thing again is not all that interesting. So, being able to work in R and D organizations or cutting edge science and technology organizations is something I think is always going to be appealing to to folks like us. And then, given the opportunity to engage um, commercial industry and and other organizations that aren't like ours. 
uh, for better ideas or different ideas or different approaches is, is just an opportunity that I've always cherished. And, and the, the Air Force in particular and Air Force Research Lab is built on, we have to keep inventing, we have to keep pushing or we're gonna fall behind. So that pressure is always there in a, in a good way. Uh, that initiative is always there in a good way. And I, I, I've had the opportunity to go across several different domains, whether it's from a clinical hospital uh, to ISR systems and been able to take the approaches that, that we found from industry and within the government and, and apply those in neat and novel ways and, and to be able to see the outcomes. Awesome. You know, and, and I think you, you do, you hit the nail on the head, you know, personally, I've always liked those challenging tasks that are creating something, but sustaining, I'm always like, nah, I kind of want to move on to something that, that really pushes the buttons. But, you know, I'm, I'm thankful because NASA gave me a lot of opportunities to do that, especially with the open innovation. And then working with you guys, we got to see a whole, whole different world, you know, point of view. And I think, you know, looking at the trajectory and I, and I can't remember which year you opened mile two, but as president of mile two, you kind of launched into that, you know, entrepreneurial on your own scary, you know, abyss of now I'm going to really challenge myself to build something from nothing and sing for my supper. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So this is actually our, our five-year anniversary this month. So we launched in July of 2015. So this is a, pretty cool landmark for us that we'll, we'll be, we've been celebrating throughout the month. But yeah, absolutely. That, that was for me, the ultimate kind of, we'll see if you got the grit to make it go. If you're, you're going to be judged harshly, right? And the, and the guardrails are off. So you have to make it go or the failure's on you. The guy, when you work for the government and other large organizations, you know, there's a lot of guardrails. There's a lot of other people you can blame if it doesn't work out well. Um, when you start your own thing, you don't have that luxury. It's, it's on you and the team that you build and, and, and making that go. I've been super fortunate over the last five years that we've been able to build a team that's just exceptional. Um, we will cross 100 people in the next probably 60 days, which is just another, you know, wild landmark for me. But I look around and I'm like, these are all phenomenally smart people who are really good at their job and bring their expertise to our, our clients' problems. And that's, that excites me every day. As again, it's, it's not the status quo. The, the configuration has changed, but we're still having an impact pushing our clients' ideas further than they thought were possible in some cases, which is fun. Yeah, so we're about the same age. I'm a little bit slower on the development curve, but uh, I think, you know, in terms of like years, years out, so SOFIC is a little over five years because we started it behind the scenes in 2014 before fully opening the doors in 2015. So again, so very similar, it's scary. (laughs) But, um, you know, you you parallel a a lot of human-centered design considerations in what you do with software architecture solutions. And um, I think the audience, would love to hear a little bit about what mile two does from the from the cognitive creation space of software um, and testing and development because you also still do a lot of support of the government like we do so I think that's also an interesting um, you know nuance yeah so foundationally we're, we're built around cognitive systems engineering um, looking at the world as it's evolved over the last 30 years and the way it continues to evolve at an accelerating pace of algorithms and and technology and self-driving cars uh so looking at the world as a joint cognitive system uh there there's not clear boundaries now so we spend a lot of time working the boundaries 
uh, trying to understand where these transition states are so that we can design interventions or visualizations or capabilities to, to let people fully understand and fully take advantage of the technology at hand. Uh, strong history in the past of people turning off technology when it didn't behave as expected. Uh, companies make it harder to do that now. So how do you bring design and understanding from the cognitive and human machine teaming space to, to answer those questions? So you can't do that alone. We're not somebody that, that sits and pontificates, right? We're an applied innovation company. We don't just talk about it, we do it. So we have a strong team of software developers, of visual designers, of UX and UI personnel to, to make that whole go, the whole thing go, including our cognitive systems engineers. Um, so for us, it's all about understanding. I got, we just got paid one of the highest compliments that we've probably ever received. Been working on a project for six months or so, and we don't actually have a lot of code at this point. It's been disposable throwaway things. If you want to talk about Agile, um, you should be able to pivot all the time and incorporate these new features. But the client today said, I would hire any one of you on this team to do the job that your guys are working on, the, the, the tech transfer job that we're describing and talking about it. I think you understand it better than most people inside the government. Uh, and I'm like, that's the highest compliment you could pay us. So we have a deep understanding of that. So when it becomes time to start to harden your code and make it production ready, production level, everybody on the team has a deep understanding of the roles, the goals, and I, I think you're going to end up with a better long-term solution. Yeah. That's where Agile for me gets a little wonky. Uh, you know, it, it almost implies that there's an endless budget and endless time to continue to incorporate these things. That's where I like the taking the human-centered approach and the cognitive systems engineering approach allows us to say, we're gonna do deep understanding up front, you know, a huge discovery phase, but we're, our understanding is gonna be rich enough that when we start coding, we will have thought through a, a lot of these things, most of these things. Yeah, and I think you, you're you starting to hit at a really good discussion point that I, I think we'll pick up on as, as we start, start talking a little bit deeper on, on the subject of adaptive thinking and innovation, but, you know, having a truly integrated and applied team that has a, has a shared understanding of the trade-offs and priorities, you know, um, irrespective of their particular expertise space is, is a critical aspect of, of this concoction of things that have to go perfectly for you to be innovative. And then, you know, I think that dovetails really well into, you know, what is innovation? I think it's, you know, personally, this is just my two cents. It's been my, my soapbox ever since, you know, we worked together X number of years ago, you know, innovation is so misunderstood because we've, we've capitalized on it as a trend and a marketing tactic without fully appreciating that innovation is not the thing. It's the outcome of a lot of other different things that have to go perfectly and have to be understood from a human centered perspective in a lot of um, respects to be impactful. And I know you've had a lot of experience in this, you know, past and present. So, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how you think it may be well used or not. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that you're nibbling around is why, why it fails in so many different places. People don't, they, they think it's a magic, it's a silver bullet. It's, it, you know, as long as we set up some of these processes, you know, magically things will come out. And, and 
to my earlier point, a lot of it's around the boundaries. They don't set up the boundary conditions where you shift from one phase to another phase to another phase to make those transitions successful. So things keep hitting these boundaries and they're almost like a hard stop or frustration sets in or people don't know roles wise who takes it now. Right. So in generally these things are happening in large companies and bureaucracies that have a lot of, uh, clearly defined roles and clearly defined organizations within sub organizations within the organization. And, and based on what I've seen over the, the last several years, um, that's why these start to fail. You don't think about it holistically of, okay, what if we're successful in step a, which is what most people want to define as innovation. You need a step B, a step C um, to, to continue that, to actually get that incorporated into your longer term product line. Uh, when we were working early on, we had the good fortune of working with P&G and General Mills. And those were two companies that were um, phenomenal about thinking about this holistically. Let's go out into the world, get a deep understanding of our customers and our customers need. They did a ton of ethnographic work. Let's go out to where our customers and watch how they interact with our products. And then they would bring that back and identify gaps. And then at the end, they knew where this product was going. It's going into a new shampoo, you know, a, a, a dry shampoo, you know. There's so many cool things that I saw over those years. They were exceptional at it because they took it all the way from the beginning of the product, driving it in the need, and they had a product at the end that they could incorporate it in. And I think that's the key to success. Yeah. And I'm going to jump on something that's always my favorite part of, you know, when people recognize like certain critical key elements, like the the user needs and understanding true problems. And so, you know, from the very beginning, when we were working on, you know, addressing NASA problems, you know, we, we went to the stakeholders and interviewed every single one of them to, to fully appreciate and also give them an unbiased perspective of like how to characterize a need, because when you own it, sometimes you, you have different um, visual blockers, you know, in terms of like not not appreciating, are you asking the right question, or do you do you fully understand the the problem that you're going out with? Um, and then, you know, fast forward to present day as a, a human centered design company, that is the very first step we we take with any company. And and when I'm first talking to them, you know, I, I make you know a pretty um, blatant statement in the very beginning that if you understand your users' needs and you do the homework and the foundation setting, you know, to your earlier point you will be an innovative company. You will by default have innovative products, no question, because you've understood a true problem and you capture your market. You can do everything else right, but if you do this wrong, you will fail on all accounts of being a successful business, a successful product, or you know, being innovative on any level. And I, I, I jump on that because that's so centric to, to our core beliefs. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I love it when I hear it from somebody else who's in a, you know, a complimentary domain that sees it as well, because it just adds, you know, more data to, to the, the proof is in the pudding. And to build off that. So I had an interesting interaction with the Digital Bureau a few months ago and, and companies that were more um, websites and internet marketing and, and driving sales that way. And the thing that stood out to me that was reinforcing is they call it discovery. Mm -hmm. the, the ones that do a really good job and are, are excellent demand that there's a discovery phase. We will not work with you if you don't let us do discovery. And that's their problem understanding. And that's a completely different field. You know, 
still software in many ways, but it, it's completely different application space. So that was reassuring to me that, you know, we are right, we're on the right. If you don't understand, you can't do it well. So understanding, I think you're also hitting on a key role that most of these organizations leave out. And it also undermines their ability to actually make progress and be truly innovative is the role of synthesis. Who is synthesizing? There's, all, there's no shortage of people who can go and document interview and document and say, well, here's your list of problems. Here's the list of things. So what, what are we gonna do with it? That synthesis stage is one of the things I think that makes your guys' company different from most. It makes our using cognitive systems engineering is, is all about how do we synthesize this? How do we look for patterns in the world and how do we transform this problem in ways that we've seen it done before? That synthesis step is one that when you walk into companies that wanna do innovation, if they don't have that role, it's an immediate red flag for me. Yeah, and it's so funny. I'm just going to say to our, our listening audience, Jeff and I did not talk about this piece of us at all, but the fact that you bring up discovery and synthesis, like those are two core, like I will not um, participate in any type of collaborative um, venture unless, you know, we, we do those two steps, like I will not engage. And so I, like, it's, it's nice to kind of hear the observations, you know, cause you sometimes get siloed and you kind of wonder like, how does this go on in other domains? And, you know, is it effective as well? Um, and is the impact there because you can only speak from your not whole of experience. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and honestly working with the government, that's super challenging to sell that discovery phase. Right. People, they, depending on the organization, they either want one or the other, right? They want you to look at things from a human machine teaming standpoint or a cognitive systems engineering. Um, many times they'll bake that into, well, you're the UI guys. It's like, well, that's one way to put it. It's probably a little superficial uh, uh, right. description, but on the other side, they either, they, they also just want you to do software, build me software. And we have had to learn to navigate and even educate in some cases, some of our clients because they're hardcore algorithm people, they're hardcore computer vision or electrical engineers. So design is not something that they really think about or appreciate in many cases. Sorry, I was just gonna say that's really interesting. I was gonna ask before you leave that topic, when you first start discussions with a, with a potential, who are you talking to? And, and because I, I know that matters a lot too, and how, you know, innovation and the expertise is perceived. Right. Uh, for me, I, I try to deal with decision makers, right. So <laughs> finding who can make the decision and they, in the government, they come from all different backgrounds and sometimes they're hidden in organizations. It's not obvious who's making the decisions. Uh, so I try to seek those folks out. But there's almost always a good example that you, an analogy or something that you can pull out and, and, and share with them regardless of their background, an example of why this is valuable. Yeah. Um, and sometimes we have to either do it out of overhead to prove the point and then it makes sense moving forward and that relationship grows because you're bringing value in ways that they couldn't anticipate. Uh, so it ends up being a win long-term. It's kind of business development or marketing that pot, even though you're working on a project. Uh, or you kind of sneak it in and in places on the project. We're going to need a little time to do X, and we're actually doing discovery, understanding, et cetera, and then coming back with our first concepts. Um, right. Yeah. 
And I think a lot of companies misunderstand that because that's it's critical and going back to something I think you were circling the drain on is making the business case for all of these activities leading up to that that end thing that they're actually request, uh, requesting from you from a services perspective. Yeah, uh, for me, I've, and I said it yesterday in one of our standups, it's about delivering value. So you need to frame and package things so that they, whoever you're working with sees that as valuable. And there's been situations where they're like, I don't think that's valuable or that's not what I need. Um, and, and early on, we were probably more willing to be like, okay, we'll do it your way. And then try to find ways to backdoor show you the value of it. Um, as we've gotten a little bigger and more established, we, we hold the line a little harder um, and say, no, let me show you why we need to do this. You came to us for a reason. There's a trust and a bond here. Let's let's use a little bit of that trust and I will reward it. Yeah, most definitely. And I know when we we talked earlier on and in, in getting prepared for this episode, you'd brought up an interesting term that I'd I'd like to you know, chit chat a little bit about innovation theater um, versus like true innovation. And, you know, I, I think this is an interesting concept because it was actually the first time I had thought about it in, in this context. So I think this would be a, a, a great area to kind of dovetail into a little bit for the audience to understand that nuance. Yeah. Yeah. The innovation theater is one that's come up through some conversations and some classes I took several years ago with, with a friend and he, he kept seeing it too. You see these organizations at the top that say, we're going to do innovation and they stand up a cell of people to do innovation and the rest of the company just keeps going on. And it's like, that is a recipe for failure because again, those boundary conditions are not well-defined. Those roles aren't defined. How do you move things into the typical product chain? Um, so it sounds good. You know, they go, they go to conferences and they talk about it. And there's, you know, five people that are going to just bust their chops for a year, 18 months to try to make this thing go. And they can't quite figure out why it's not going. Um, and it turns into more theater because it's not institutionalized. It's not holistic to the business that it's being housed within. And it tends to fall apart. And I think that's a critical point, you know, early in venturing out independently, we got called in to help some companies look at their newly um, slated innovation program. And I said, okay, I said, but what is, what is your ultimate goal here in terms of support, supporting the underlying business elements and the strategy and also like what products you're trying to put out from a five to 10 year perspective. And they just kind of looked at me They're like, well, we were just told to be innovative. And so, you know, to your point is, you know, it looks good on paper and it, it, you know, it, 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 I think it checks the box from a, from a visibility perspective, but there's, there's no substance there. And all you end up doing is burning out people, you know, chasing your tail, so to speak, because you haven't understood the foundation of what makes things innovative, you know, as we were talking about before. And more importantly, innovation comes from addressing gaps, right? right. Um, and so, you know, when we think about those gaps in organization, we think about them on two levels, you know, what is the actual tangible gap we're trying to solve, but what is the team, what is the requirement of the team around it from an integration perspective to help solve that gap for the organization from a people perspective, as well as a design perspective. And, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot of interesting experiences, you know, with the projects that you have, because they're so diverse that you could probably shed some light on that for our listeners. Yeah. So one of the things that stands out to me, one of the typical definitions of innovation is taking something that exists and apply it in a new and novel way that wasn't anticipated in its original invention. Right. That's the difference between invention and innovation. And what you were hitting on organizationally is they're, they're not doing that. They don't have an end game in mind. What's your application? If you can't get it to the application space, it's just standing up pilots and investing in things and putting money against uh, these ideas. But the ideas have to go to the applied space or you're not innovating. Um, and I think that disconnect from the core business and just the activity of innovation as they're defining it is a, is a nice uh, curtain to stand behind and say, I'm holding it up and this is innovation. I got a banner, but you're not, you're not going to get the outcomes that you want. We've got a banner and a title, right? <laughs> right yeah, it looks good. It sounds good. And people get jazzed. I think one of the other things that about that, that is a risk that they underestimate and, and waste is it's usually your best people that'll go off and do that. Right. The, the ones you put on your team and you 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 are undermining, you know, the power and the motivation that they have if you don't set them up for a holistic success and you either burn them out or they they check out on innovation and go back to the old ways. I think it's a lose lose both from the product and the people side if you don't take it seriously. Right. And so, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit too about the, the nuts and bolts of a company from the people perspective when you're, we're thinking, when you're thinking about these integrative teams that have to go off and solve this gap or this design challenge. Um, you know, I think there's, I think there's some corollaries here between you, what you do and what we've done um, specifically, you know, we opened Sofic to kind of solve that gap from a human centered design, not just as a design methodology, but as a, a business strategy. And so, you know, to your point in earlier conversations, we were really looking at the organization to help them fundamentally understand that strategy drives everything you do, as well as you know the integration point between the expertise and the skills on the line and understanding that that end user environment, if you will. And they're not they're not um, mutually independent of each other. They're they're very much connected. And so we published this model a couple of years ago and I couldn't believe it wasn't already out there because for me, it was just basic thinking like, this is just good business practice. This is, this is how you show value and return on investment and all these foundational activities that we've been talking about. And I know you have some very strong perspectives about, um, you know, when you think about the organization and the decision makers versus the team on the line executing, there's not always that commonality and good understanding of why some things have to be done the way they are. And then where do you make those decisions from a funding and investment perspective to support that holistically? Yeah, I think you, you in some ways, you're pointing out another role that seems to be missing in a lot of organizations that try to do innovation and fail or try to be innovative and fail. And it's the role of the person that's the envisioner. Being able to envision and connect those dots to the current business practices and the current product line and the current things that you're doing, but envision past that. And to be able to take the idea that's in that innovation phase, connect it enough to where we're at or how it's gonna go around where we're at to get where we wanna be. And to be able to communicate that in a way that you can get buy-in from other folks in the organization. I think that's another, it's a role that is 
rarely defined and underappreciated. And when you have those folks that can do that, you start to see those innovative leaps, right? They, they are able to go and communicate what the future could look like in tangible ways, but still connecting it to the core business that, they, that already exists there. And being able to communicate it to everyone's understanding and perception level, right? And, you know, I think that's also a spidey skill in a sense. <laughs> and some people are just, you know, natural at, at this, like, ability to integrate and communicate, uh, to your point. Yeah. yeah, it's the connecting the dots is the hard part on both ends, in my opinion. Why do you take data and, and evolve it into something new and novel? Uh, and that's, to me... What's great about working with brilliant people, um, and then when you see it work, that I mean, that's why it looks. It, it's one why it looks like magic to all the organizations that it doesn't work for, or they want to be aspirational and be innovative. But it's also when it does work, it looks like magic there too within the organization. And it's those roles, those folks that are connecting things and taking things across the boundaries um, that really make it go. I like to think of it as it's shedding the light on the gray space. Like, you know, there's some people who are just incredibly adept at, you know, being able to remove themselves from the weeds and seeing that um, writing on the wall, so to speak, before anybody else does. And they, they, they hone in on that gray space that kind of just blows the space wide open to your point. And I think, you know, when we, if we connect this to, to current day, you know, for some of our listeners and all the things that are going on from a data perspective, I think this is a huge topic of importance and a, a failure to understand the, the power of this, this understanding and integrator role in communicating, because what we're seeing is a lot of chaos right now for everything that you just mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have a nerdy term for that role. It's called a reflective practitioner within mile two. And they're yeah, rare. The person, <laughs> the person who can be an expert, but also can step back and look at it from afar and, and look at it in a relatively unbiased manner and put it in perspective. Those folks are rare. But when you find one, it's so enlightening because they can talk the details. When you're too close to the details, it's hard to talk about the abstract. And when you work at the abstract and you're too far from the details, it's hard to do that. So there's people that can do both are, are amazing. Um, and that's why you don't see a lot of folks that are driving some of the data science stuff also being decision makers. And that's why you're starting to find some of these crossing patterns where we're missing uh, opportunities because it's not been represented in ways that support the decision maker is being represented in ways that the data scientists can better manipulate it, understand their data set. That's why a lot of these visualizations look the way they do. It's because a data scientist or an engineer needs to understand what's going on with their data. So the visualizations support that way more than they actually support the decisions that they're being used for. Oh, that is such a good point. I don't know if you're familiar with Tufty, you know, you know, old, old school data visualization expert, but I mean, the message was always clear. Data can lie depending on, on how you present it. And, you know, to your point, if you're not understanding the need that that data has to serve, you're going to come out with, um, I don't want to say false positives, but, but false decisions that, you know, could have been supported in another direction, um, for lack of a better way to put it. I know I'm not char characterizing that perfectly. You probably have better terms than I do. <laughs> I steal them from everyone else. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're coming to conclusions that don't, 
that aren't actually supported by the data or the conditions that the data were collected in or the conditions of the real world that you're trying to apply your assumptions and insights into. Um, that's one of the things we talk a lot at mile two about representation aiding, right? It's not just visualization. You can put data on the screen. You can, you can light pixels up, but what are you really representing? Um, and that goes back to that user and that understanding. Let me represent the data and the information so that someone with, with knowledge of the environment or knowledge of the context will be able to interpret it in a way that is informative and not misleading or not just, you know, gray matter integration. You know, I, I throw it all at a person, they'll, they'll integrate it in their head and make sense of it. You're like king of the great terms this morning. <laughs> I love it. Representation aiding, that's good. I, I think that's a perfect way to characterize it. Um, but, you know, I think too, things are moving so fast with the data. You know, we get forced into a position that people want answers and want direction and want to understand. And gen generally, I think everybody wants to do the right thing, but I think people are also resistant to change in direction and don't understand that as the data change, the pictures change, and so does our guidance. So you see a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, consternation and strife because we keep changing the rules and nobody likes that and everybody feels like it's all bad direction as a result and you know I don't know that I have the answer to that because it's more of a survival of the fittest concept if you don't adapt and change you're you know you're going to have consequences to that and I think that's on the personal level I think that's on the business level right now and we're, we're seeing it um, I think come to fruition now that it's been multiple months of some of this data aggregation and not necessarily knowing what the truth is within the numbers, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. Uh, and you're hitting on a couple themes there that are, are challenging for people, right? One's pace, right? The data is coming at a pace that is hard to keep up with. The environment is shifting. So the data is one thing, but the environment keeps shifting at a pace that's hard to deal with. Uh, the lack of anticipation, people like to anticipate. So you want to look ahead and be able to make reasonable judgments of where this thing is going to go or what we're going to be able to do or not be able to do. School's coming up. That's a perfect example. Everybody who has school-aged children or works in the community, uh, you know, touching a school is, has no ability to anticipate what's coming out tomorrow. I think our, our, our uh, school district's coming out tonight, right? Okay. It's a guessing game. Yeah. Our ability to anticipate because of the lag, the data, the pace is just frustrating to people. And I think it makes it hard. So one, hard to get buy-in, right? Hard to get consensus and commitment. And that's one of the things that you're seeing is a lack of commitment to things that in many ways seem very sensible, you know, not too big of a burden to bear, but people push back pretty hard against it. Yeah, and I think that's, it's hard to explain the why behind what we're doing. And it's a, because they're looking at data that's lagging they're looking at data that's not actually supporting decision-making. You know, it, it, it's a perfect storm of hard. Uh, so one of the things I saw the other day that uh, Ohio State proposed was um, kind of like the NFL combine, right? So it was a, it was a pattern-based display that had, I think, six or eight axes that were kind of like a spider web. And they had the different conditions, whether it was hospital beds available, you know, trends on positive tests, testing, uh, recoveries, deaths, and the patterns were actually informing you. And if it looked like this pattern, 
here's the interventions that you need to consider. If it looks like this pattern, this is very likely the next pattern. And here's what you need to do to get ahead of that. So that's where I talk about representation aiding in a way that actually helps decision making. It's the same data. It's represented in a way that allows you to get ahead. All the decisions so far seem to be very lagging and reactive. And it's a hard job. Like I'm not criticizing anybody by any means. Right. But it's a hard job, it's but they are. Perfect storm. Right. It's the reality is they're lagging they're lagging decisions. Um, so how do you represent, how do you get those decision makers looking forward, getting ahead of some of the trends that are happening? We're getting to the point that I would, I would argue that there's probably enough data over the last, what, four months that you can start to see trends and, and patterns that are repeating themselves potentially. So can we, can we get ahead of that? And I think you can, and I think design is a huge piece of that. Oh, I agree. And, you know, before we, we leave the, the behavior aspect, I think people don't understand people enough to understand how we respond to things and, and why this is not completely um, unpredictable. You know, the, the chaotic response from different, different people, I think, is, is also illustrated. You know, I don't know if you remember the campaign that came out and it was pretty hard hit. We're all in this together. Right. But if you think about this and, you know, in our first podcast with Dr. Jen Fogarty, you know, she made a really good point. We're not really in this together. It's the same storm, but we're all in different boats because we have different circumstances and different variables that not everybody shared. And human behavior, if you go back to the fundamentals of how we react and interact with our world and what we expect it's built off of our experiences. And so if we're not experiencing, let's say a large impact, we don't know a lot of people who've been affected by this and we only see the negative of how it affects me pers personally or on a selfish level for lack of a better way to put it. And now I have to work from home. I have to homeschool, that's two jobs in one day. Like, how do I, how do I control this? You know, whereas before I had a very, you know, nice schedule expected things to go through the day and I could manage my life. And so I think we forget that um, there, are, there are nuances to this that are foundational human behavior that if we paid more attention to how to navigate um, the conversations and the messaging to your point, based off those factors, we may see a little bit of a different response. And now I'm not claiming I have a solution but that's a place to start. Like start with how we naturally react to things and the things we know from hundreds of years of science and then, you know, start presenting the data accordingly. And it has to be different for each, each demographic. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's in that it's where you get a lot of that pushback, just like you said, uh, cause I heard it with my friends who lived in rural counties. They're like, we've had three cases. Why can't I not go get a haircut, you know, for six weeks? This is disproportionate to the impact of our area, but they're treating us just like they're treating Cleveland, which, you know, was having a huge outbreak. And it's like, yeah, those policy decisions are, are difficult. And I think one of the things is right-sizing. And that's, again, back to decision-making. How much is enough and how much is not enough? And that boundary condition is a, is... How do you highlight that? Because it's not a bright light, bright white line likely. It's probably right. a set of conditions. So how do you present that information to decision makers so that they can be more maybe surgical or tailored to the, to the responses? Because um, yeah. I think there's good behaviors and bad behaviors 
regardless of whether you have a an outbreak or not. So depending on where you're at on that, maybe it's, you know, do these things and you'll prevent an outbreak. But if you're in an outbreak, we need to do these things. And there may be a little more broad, uh, broadly applied or harder hitting uh, or inconvenient. You know, that's a term we keep hearing a lot. This is inconvenient. Uh, yeah, it's inconvenient. It is. And I think it's too, like, it's like for all of the things you said before, pace, change you know it's a lot of things all at once where we're not traditionally faced with all of this stuff all at once it's really hard to find a normalization point and you know as human beings we like homeostasis so when we can't find homeostasis what happens we elicit stress behavior and we react negatively whether we should or not from a logical standpoint right and i think too you know part of the influence there is you know if you go back to the the the, the um, phrase, it's better to be feared than loved. It's really not. When you start fear, you know, relying heavily on on fear communication, you get to a point where you've touched the nerve so much you're numb. And I think that's really again not understanding how human beings um, um, ingest and consume and understand and perceive things effectively. Where you know, like from a data presentation, maybe we could we could turn it around with a more positive spin to your point on, you know, representation. Yeah, the Ohio governor has done a, a pretty good job from the communication standpoint and trying to keep it positive about what we can do and why we should do these things. Uh, he came out yesterday pretty, pretty strongly in advocacy of wearing masks everywhere. Um, didn't go so far as to mandate it because of some of the polarization of these things in my that's my opinion but he tried to appeal to people of this will get us out of this quicker there's light at the end of the tunnel we need to take care of each other that's one decision that each individual can make to contribute towards the the greater good of the cause let's rally around this and destigmatize it and try to be comprehensive in mask wearing and here's some positive examples of where that worked i want to do that too yeah, and he took a very positive tone as opposed to a, I'm going to punish you if I'm not, if you don't do it, I'm going to mandate it and we're going to tie up, you know, courts and fights and money and all these things to enforce it. I'm still giving you the choice, but I'm trying to appeal to you in a positive way that it's the right thing to do for your community, for your family, for everyone. Yeah, and just trying to be predictive, I, I I have a feeling that those communities that take that tactic are going to fare a little bit better on the compliance end of things. Because I'll just say, you know, in the Houston area, I think it's been more of a fear and punishment tactic. Right. Um, and also, you know, there's there's been a little bit of strife between the ranks, too, of not not everybody being on the same page and, you know, for better or for worse. But it's challenging, right? Because everybody comes from it from a, a different um, stakeholder perspective. But I think, you know, in light of all the things that you said, you know, it's clear that we have to do some things different. And also when you just think about the future of this country and the success of its small businesses like yours and mine, you know, we've got to adapt and evolve, right? And, you know, I think there's some very fundamental things that we've seen. There's been so many companies that have gone out of business because of, of this, but you know, to your point earlier, those that have adapted and been able to see the the space in between are doing really well. And, you know, I, I don't know if you want to share some thoughts on what you think, you know, um, some of the key things of consideration for those like, like you who are doing well to share with some of our listeners who might be struggling small businesses. There's just so much conditions and context that you can't control that will 
that you can't predict clearly whether you're going to be successful or not. Uh, one of the things I, I've, I've observed with my kids uh, in basketball training, right? So the technology has been around for quite a while to use computer vision to tell you how your shot, shot's going or how you dribble and, and have a bunch of metrics using algorithms, computer vision on your phone or a tablet. Not very wide, widely adopted. You know, no, we need to go practice with a coach. We need to go practice together. They'll correct me in person. You need to see it to give good feedback. They quickly said, nope, not going to be able to do that. Here's an app. Go do this. And it's all computer vision driven. So some things that had had, had a lot of resistance, mm -hmm. uh, remote monitoring for, for workouts and that kind of stuff for teams or groups um, that had had a lot of resistance are now the norm. Right. So the conditions, you couldn't anticipate that, right? If you had a basketball tracking app a year ago and you're beating your head against the market, you can't anticipate that, but you got to take advantage of Zoom's a perfect example. We're on this call. I read a great article of him talking about these transitions of overnight, you know, their, their users went up like 5X or some crazy number uh, that you couldn't anticipate, but they, they were able to adapt and overcome. You need to, I think... Companies like ours have it a lot easier than if you're a barber shop or you make, you know, cakes and cookies. If you don't have your storefront and people can't come through there, you can't just shift that. You can't do virtual haircuts. Right. right? So <laughs> I think that's where context and conditions and all those kind of things. Um, there's no one size fits all. And I think that's where some of the hard decision making needs to to be potentially more thoughtful or we have to present that information in a way that they can make better uh, tailored decisions so that a barbershop can open, but, you know, a restaurant can't because of these things, you know, or maybe the rules are different, right? The whole capacity thing maybe isn't the same for a restaurant than it is for a, a barbershop. So um, that that's kind of my wish and hope for all of this is, is we smarten up so that we can present this information in the future so decision makers can make even more tailored decisions that will allow everyone a good opportunity to survive, right? It's unprecedented what we're going through to some degree, um, at least in our lifetime. Oh, and, for sure. And, you know, so nobody has a model for this that's that's super sound that they're like, well, here's what we'll do. Uh, so you are learning a lot of things on the fly. But that's that's my hope is we can learn from this from a, from a decision-making and a decision support standpoint uh, that we can do better in the future. I almost think too, as a small business, you're, you're, you're actually better off because you're smaller and can change more quickly than, than the bigger folks. Although, you know, to your point, depending on what type of small business you are, you're more at risk because it's, you know, if you rely on the human to human interaction component to do business, then you've got a problem and, and how do you transition that? Um, but it's also a question for our culture. How much will our culture accept and how much does this change? Like just human norm normality as as a result and you know when you look to the future of your business obviously you're doing things differently right now just like we are you know we we opened an office at the beginning of the year got to use it for like a month and a half and then we had to shut it down and like i couldn't have predicted from that like i'm not that smart um but now like i have an office that we don't go to we all work from home but we're doing okay um but I'm sure you guys are working from home, but you guys have a beautiful office space too. And just committed right before all this to a three floors of a new building, you know, that's supposed to open the first of the year. 
Um, so that all just gets thrown up in the air and it's, it's wild. Um, I think one of the things though, that you're, you're pushing on a little bit here is, um, and I hope, I hope this ends up being true when you're small, you don't have enough capacity for taxing overhead or unnecessary overhead, whether it's even compliance of rules, you can't have so many rules because you can't enforce them or compliant. It's not, it's not worth the time and energy. I'm hoping that some of these larger companies can look at some of their policies, their rules, their roles even, and say, these are truly necessary and these aren't. Uh, I think the government, at least on the defense side, has actually done a reasonable job on this. There's a couple outliers, like the whole haircut thing for Marines. That was a super interesting one to me for as someone far away from that problem of, you were talking about culture, you're talking right. about, you know, a, a, what will we accept and what will we not accept? And that was a that was a very controversial uh, discussion there for several weeks. Right. Uh, it, so it does definitely shine light on on rules and regulations that maybe don't need to be there within companies. Um, yeah, and I think professional dress has show slowly shifted, and and like we're more accepting. Like if I show up in my workout clothes to a team meeting, you know, I don't. I don't get bogged down in that kind of stuff because it doesn't affect my ability to get my job done. And I, you know, obviously we want to be respectful and representative to our clients, but I think too, working from home, we've now considered it's okay to show up and work out clothes because you're at home. And so like now does the business landscape change forever because nobody wants to put on a suit and tie anymore. I don't know if that's bad or good. I don't. Right. Yeah, I don't pass any judgment on it. I think Mile Two maybe was a ahead of their time from from a dress perspective. We were a t-shirt and jeans company from from day one, pretty much. Um, so this hasn't been too big of a shift. The shift for us has actually been around hats. I've never seen so many hats in meetings, but there's a lot of folks that just like haven't been able to get haircuts or you know yeah. haven't had a haircut and are uncomfortable with their hairstyle and and wearing hats in meetings. Uh, yeah. That's been the shift for me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm guilty of 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 you know ponytails and and things of that nature as well. But so you know, I think you know we're we're coming to the end of this conversation. But looking into the future of Mile Two, and you know, thinking about our guests who kind of run the spectrum of human-centered design, interested parties, practitioners, and then also you know everybody in the space in between. We you know we cater to a lot of industries. You know, what do you what have you seen that has really inspired you from like the innovation perspective if we go back to the, like the survival of the adaptive and the whole point of this podcast and thinking about innovation and in companies you know some examples of some really extraordinary moves that have you know been um facilitated by this whole covid situation but are phenomenal from a business like adaptability perspective again not to put you on the spot but like yeah. you see some pretty cool things so i didn't want to let that chance go by <laughs> um yeah it's for me it's been more the little things again like the basketball app i mean that's a complete shift education i think is going to be extremely disrupted depending depending on what uh these different districts decide I know one of the neighboring districts said you can either go all in with school and we'll have these precautions and it's all in person or you can take school online, but not with our teachers. It's through this other program. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole industry that's going to explode if, if a, a lot of uh, districts take that, take that path. And that also changes the role of the teacher, right? If you opt into this other program with other teachers and providers, 
you know, what's that relationship of the local teachers and the communities? I think we're going to see some super disruptive decisions. And it's like anything that's innovative that you can't anticipate all the outcomes. And I think it's going to fundamentally change communities, interactions, roles in ways that hopefully are positive, right? I still think there's an opportunity for this to be very positive from those changes, but um, it's hard to anticipate. Yeah, and I almost anticipate more commercialization of lower education because the volume of students in the classroom can't be supported because there's not that volume of teachers. And then also when you think about the distribution of age demographics and teachers, you know, some some teachers aren't going to be able to adapt completely to some of this technology from like a human experience perspective, because that is not their world and nor should we expect it to be at that point in their career. Right. And right. unfortunately, I think we will, which is a mis is, again, a bad human centered design decision from a business perspective. But, you know, does our whole taxing structure change because people aren't going to public school anymore and now you're faced as a parent with finding private institutions to support this because like I thank god I don't have a kid right now I don't, I don't know what I would do because my parents were teachers like I understand this from a different perspective but this must be like a, a nightmare for them understanding what what their future um, potential and opportunity is in this profession. And I think it could be good or bad, depending on where you lie in the spectrum of experience and adaptability, right? Right, absolutely. So you, you hit on the individual level and you kind of touched on at the more abstract level, the city tax base is changing significantly. People like Facebook that have made, not people, organizations like Facebook, that have made decisions to say, okay, everybody went remote, we're not coming back for a year, but wherever you stay, that's where you're gonna get paid against that locality. Well, individually, that probably hurts a whole lot of people from a tax base that hurts one tax base, but improves how many others, right? So that's just, to me, wildly disruptive in ways, again, that we can't anticipate. That's just gonna change the whole community aspect, infrastructure, who supports what and how. It's gonna open up opportunities for towns that probably never had the chance uh, and it's going to hurt some probably metropolitan areas in significant ways, which hopefully ho helps them to innovate. You know, a lot of times it's during those tight times when people come up with clever solutions that are, are truly innovative. So I, I I'm tend to be a, a, a optimist. So I try to look for the uh, silver lining in these situations. But it's this has been truly disruptive. Yeah, I think we've only just begun, you know, in seeing kind of how this is going to evolve, because I think this will probably be the most fast evolution of things on multiple different levels at one time that we would ever have been poised to see despite the rate of change of technology. So, you know, I think it's going to be a ride. <laughs> right, absolutely. I think another thing that just is wild to me is the concept of time and work. That's been completely turned upside down right? For everyone, kids, if you have kids or don't have kids, it's changed. Uh, you have more time at home, definitely. And then what do you do with that time? There's hard boundaries. I used to use my super short commute home as a transition state. It gave me a chance to think and kind of move from one phase of work to I need to go to a kid's practice or something like that, or I need to come home and do X. It's, I don't have that anymore. The transition spaces are gone. Um, so you have to make some artificially. One of the things that we're seeing organizationally, you talk about adaptation, 
is the good ideas and the interactions that you have from small talk that end up being shared. It's like, yeah, we should do something like this. That momentum is lost because there's no transcend, like it's meeting, 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 grab lunch, meeting, 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 because that's the way everybody, there, there's no interims of transitioning between meeting rooms or in, interacting on the way to the bathroom and things like that, that used to happen where good ideas or, hey, did you know, sharing knowledge across the tribe, those are gone now. So we're actually looking to come up with some clever ways to not tax people's time because you don't want to be like, hey, we're going to do this at six o'clock in the evening. We're going to have small talk hour, right? But how do you integrate that into the normal day? Do we take 15 minute windows three times a day and just open up a Slack channel or not a Slack channel, but like a Zoom or a Google Hangout? And it's just a living room, you know, essentially, and everybody can come and go as they want. Yeah. It's disruptive in ways that are just, uh, again, comprehensive in a way that we've just never, never experienced before. And it's hard. It's more exhausting to be online all the time because it takes different like human like activity versus one-on-one conversation. And like, and I know we struggle with it too. It's so fake, you know, and I think there's been a significant loss of just that camaraderie piece of it. Cause we're all by ourselves all the time. And I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. And I don't think you get that a hundred percent back through technology, because there's something about physically being near people that I think is part of the human condition. And I don't think that's a cultural thing. I think that's just a human being thing. Well, and attention's a finite resource, right? And in a, in a meeting, like you feel like you need to be like staring so everybody sees that you're engaged. We're in a real meeting, one person's talking and you can be taking notes and kind of step away for a second to reflect for a minute while you're taking your notes. Right. But everybody's staring at everybody and making eye contact all the time. It's, it, it's a little unnerving sometimes. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jeff, this has been an awesome conversation. And like, I certainly appreciate your time and insight and sharing with us some of your experiences with Mile 2 there in Dayton, Ohio, which is, you know, fast becoming an innovative mega center. And I, mega center, excuse me, um, partially, I think, between, you know, due to some of your activities as, as we follow you. But um, I, are there any last words that you would like to, to contribute to survival of the adaptive podcast? <laughs> uh, one, just thank you for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to, to, you know, share our thoughts on this and share our experiences and talk a little bit about mile two. Uh, I think the other piece of this is it survival, survival of the adaptive. The pace is only going to increase, right? It used to be a slower pace. The cycles go faster now. And when you start to talk about algorithms, autonomy, autonomous systems, that adaptation cycle is going to be faster and faster. So people like you and your organization and organizations like Mile2 are on the cutting edge of helping people adapt. And I, I don't think we're going to run out of work anytime soon. <laughs> that's a good thing. I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, on, I'm on board. <laughs> well, thanks again, Jeff, for your time. Um, this has been another episode of the Human Odyssey podcast. Thanks for joining us today. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.